0: Memorizing the pentacle and all of that, right? We're not doing that. I'm done with grading those and looking at those, and I think that's more like an undergrad kind of thing. So what I want to dedicate this two weeks to is something a little different. We're going to introduce some terms and basic stuff related to carbs, but then I want to spend time on thinking about fiber, okay? Different types of fiber, but clinically, how what it can do and why it's important, and then I want to spend a lot of time on diabetes, okay? Because it's a very rampant thing in our culture many cultures and it's relevant to know clinically so we're gonna that's the, that's the layout and dive deep into diabetes mostly next week okay this week will be more fiber so that's the roadmap um, but uh, again like every section we'll start off pretty slow here um, Okay, so for today's objectives, we're going to think about how they're classified. Um, We're going to think about different ways you can think about dietary fiber. How different ways it can be defined. We're going to think about why and explain why fiber is such an important part of a diet, a healthy diet. and then, yeah, we'll connect it to some suggested mechanisms, like I mentioned before, because there is some evidence that, some actual scientific evidence that connects um, fiber's ability to lower your cholesterol, for instance. Um, and then we'll think about digestion. Okay. And some of these objectives will bleed into the second lecture. Um, but a lot of it we'll touch on today. OK, so thinking about carbohydrates, we're basically thinking about plants. Um, yes, you could argue that animals make glycogen, right, and we eat animals, but um, that glycogen is really quickly depleted when rigor mortis sets in, when an animal dies, that glycogen is depleted. We're, basically, you're thinking about plants, you're thinking about consuming carbohydrates, okay? Um, you're familiar, I know you're familiar with monosaccharides and disaccharides and oligosaccharides and polysaccharides, okay? <laughs> We're going to discuss these. Um, and yes, it will be lots of review, um, but it will allow us to set up our next conversation. And some of you might like the review. Okay, so one way you can classify carbohydrates is based on the degree of polymerization. Okay, um, And so that's what you have over here, in these different classes. And there's um, different um, dietary sources listed here. Let's see if the sugar alcohols are in here oh yeah the sugar alcohols um, they're included here you don't absorb polyols sometimes called sugar alcohols are also called polyols um, but they do provide sweetness okay and we'll talk about them a little more in a little bit um, and then you have the oligosaccharides so this is anywhere from three to nine um, and maltodextrins we'll talk about this okay um, You'll see maltodextrins are typically commonly seen on labels, right? This would be like a, a textural component to the food or sweetness. Um, these non-alpha-glucans and alpha-glucans, this refers to if we can digest them, and we'll discuss that as well today, alpha-glucans and non-alpha-glucans. Um, these include things like raffinose, stichyose, fructose, galacto-oligosaccharides, and so forth, and poly, as seen on a few labels. We'll talk about these. The last category we'll talk about is the polysaccharides. And that starts um, what we can digest here. The non-starch fibers, um, starch is what we can digest. The non-starch are the fiber molecules, okay? Non-starch, and those that we do not digest. Um, And these are commonly components of cell walls in plants. And how much that they're available to us, becomes how processed the food is, right? Um, eating a whole food, for instance, access might be very difficult. Um, we don't digest these um, non-starch polysaccharides, but we do use them physiologically, which is interesting. And so we'll also talk about that. So we're going to thinking about the different, um, the monodisaccharides or oligosaccharides and polysaccharides. And we'll address them separately about some of these things. Okay, so first the monosaccharides. You don't need to reproduce or draw these, um, just for just looking at them. Okay, all six carbon sugars here. Okay, glucose and galactose, pretty similar. Okay, and then fructose, as you can tell, looks a little bit different. Glucose, fructose, glyphos. Um, Another five carbon sugar that's important to our biology is ribose, okay, this is five carbons. We consume, we also make ribose. You probably are somewhat familiar with the pentose phosphate pathway. I really it's the pathway that always gets like minimally addressed and then you move on. Uh, we'll talk about it a little more in micronutrients. There's some important, some relevant information for that pathway I'm thinking about some of the B vitamins and so forth, but um, at any rate, we make and consume ribose um, and we'll talk more about why it's important to our biology in a little bit. Okay. And then we have some disaccharides. You can see we have two sugar, unit, two single sugar units put together here. And so I've listed some here, and then some examples of where you might find them. Um, you have sucrose at the top, which is a glucose and fructose unit. Okay, um, this is very commonly found in fruit sugar, and so forth. Uh, lactose is a galactose and glucose molecule okay, together, and I mean, milk is obviously a very natural extension of lactose. Maltose is two glucose units, and you find maltose in things like sprouted wheat, barley, etc. Amylose, or amylopectin, is the largest source of maltose. Okay, amylose and amylopectin. We'll talk about that in a minute. And, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. There's also a two, trehalose is another disaccharide that is also two gl- um, glucose monomers. And it's found in yeast or fungi, fungi and is also used commonly in pharmaceuticals as a filler. Um, and maltose is also two glucose monomers. Okay, does anyone, does anyone ever learn about trehalose? Does anyone remember the difference between maltose and trehalose? So here's here's trehalose, I'll highlight it here. Here's trehalose, and then here's maltose. So it has to do with the alpha versus beta linkage of the two glucose units. And simply because of that, it becomes a totally different molecule. So to this day, whenever I see a mushroom, I think trehalose. It's just one of those little weird things that sticks I wish all information stuck in my brain that easily. Um, Okay, and then you have the two major groups of the oligosaccharides, the um, average of eight, usually, um, monomers. And here you can separate it into two groups. You can think about the maltodextrins and then the non-digestible oligosaccharides. Okay, so think about them as the maltodextrins and not. The non-digestible, um, are arranged as sucrose as a starting point. Okay, Now, for example, well, I'll come back to this. So the non-digestible um, oligosaccharides, they move through the small intestines and down into the large intestines. They're not being digested. And then they become a substrate for fermentation by bacteria. That's their fate, right? Um, Common one I just put here is beans. I found in beans. This is raffinose. You can see we have sucrose as a backbone, and raffinose happens to have an additional galactose, and that's what it is. This is its makeup. Um, and this is actually the compound that's associated with um, gas production. Okay, so raffinose. These little molecules are being fermented by bugs, and one of the major products when they ferment meth, um, raffinose is methane. Okay. Um
1: it's not on my on my slide the raffinose
0: the picture is it the molecules yeah, yeah. oh interesting should be there okay Well, you can write it down I'm not going to ask you to, like I said about to draw the monomer or the monomers of raffinose um, Okay. And then we get the polysaccharides. We can think about starch okay, and glycogen. So starch would be in the plants, and in terms of glycogen, we're thinking about being made in mammals. Okay. So anything above 10, we're thinking about now a polysaccharide. Um, and then you can further separate the starches into amylose and amylopectin. We'll look at that in a minute. Basically, it has to do with branching. How it's classified. Let's look at this now. Does anyone remember this? Has anyone reviewed the amylose and amylopectin? I don't know where you would have, but basically we have amylose here in the top, and amylose is glucose bound together by an alpha-1-4 linkage. Okay? And we have enzymes that cleave that linkage very nice in our body. Okay? Amylopectin, down here below it, is very similar. It's also a linear chain of glucose. But all amylopectin also has these branch points. As you can tell, amylose up here is just this nice linear little chain. Amylopectin has these branch points where there's alpha 1,6 linkages, okay? Which we also have enzymes to digest, chop it up, okay? So again, the major difference between amylose and amylopectin is in amylopectin, as highlighted by your book with these little red points. So just as an example, there's more branch points. That's represented by a different linkage, the alpha-1,6. Linkage. Over here on the right is glycogen. And if you can see, glycogen looks very similar to amylopectin. Okay, Structurally, it is the exact same as amylopectin, but there's just many, many more branch points. Okay? Um, but we don't, per se, digest it. Okay but we process it enzymatically um, to access the glucose molecules, which we'll we'll walk through. Um, So today, when we walk through digestion, we're going to reference these different compounds, whether we're starting with amylose or amylopectin and so forth. Here's just a picture, a photo of glycogen, because I thought it was really interesting. Um, I'm not sure if this is animal or human tissue. but yeah, so you can see these nice um, branches of glycogen. This would be a cross section of muscle, and you can see um, some really nice stores of glycogen here. This is what it would look like. All right, I want to talk about the non starch polysaccharides for a little bit, um, the classification systems, what they look like. Um, and then potential and some established health benefits, okay? So fiber, most importantly, first of all, can be divided into two sections, soluble and insoluble fiber, okay? Soluble fibers over here include the fructans, the beta-glucans and pectins and gums, okay? Um, And Defined soluble though, so I want to step back for a second. What does it mean by soluble? What do we mean by that? Dissolves in water? Yeah, so, yes, exactly. So basically it means that it's soluble in water. If you stirred with water any of these soluble fibers, um, for instance, you're probably familiar with Metamucil, right? It's a um, supplemental version of soluble fiber. If you stirred it in water, if you put in the right amount, and you stirred it up, what would happen to it? Like Has anyone done a gel. this before? Yeah. Like a gel. yeah, it makes a gel. Yeah, you probably want to drink that, um, but it does, and that's what's happening in our gut. Okay? We're going to talk more about that, a lot more. If you took a spoonful of cellulose <laughs> and you dumped it in the glass, it would just fall to the bottom. It's insoluble. Okay? Um, and so also another way of thinking about this that we'll talk about in a moment is viscosity. So you can think about viscous or non-viscous classifications of fiber. Now I you don't know how many times, even even yesterday, with a you don't know how many how many times you'll come across this fiber conversation. Even the other day, the physician or my mother in law was recommending fiber. It's like Well, what kind of fiber, right? That's a huge, because you will look at today, there's major differences in the function of soluble versus insoluble fiber, right? There's very big differences. Um, And you're gonna get in the clinic, and you're gonna be talking, someone's gonna ask you about fiber or something, and and you're gonna get your wires crossed. It happens, it's like, wait, is it soluble? Is it insoluble? And you're gonna be trying to sort it out. It's just what happens. So I don't have anything like, I don't have a secret to that, but I do my little, the way that I try to remember is soluble is slow. Right? Soluble forms the gel and you'll learn today and the next lecture how it slows things down. So if you're trying to remember the difference between the action that you need or want, soluble is slow. Okay? Um, And we'll revisit that.
1: I was just... uh... You got one? I was just trying to figure out uh, fiber, some type of fiber to order as a supplement, mm-hmm. and start looking at what's in the store and all this. I settled on just an apple fiber, because it's, it's got both.
0: Apple, yeah, apple, yes. And we'll talk about this today. We'll think about, maybe today or the next lecture, they have compared consuming fiber from food versus supplements. Okay.
1: Um,
0: how much money did you pay for this?
1: It was pretty cheap. It was oh, like good. 12 bucks for a bag. I'm gonna give it a shot.
0: Okay. So I'm not delivering too bad news. It was like $60. But we'll look at this too, but basically, fiber coming from food is considerably more effective than in terms of long-term and short-term health benefits than supplements. So, but you try it out. Why not? Um, okay. So probably the most abundant fiber molecule we consume, uh, cellulose. Now, cellulose is made of these glucose monomers bound together just like all the other ones, but what makes them different from amylose and amylopectin is how they are bound together. Now we have a beta 1,4 linkage, beta, okay? And unfortunately, we do not have the machinery to break this bond, okay? We do not have the enzymes in our body to break this bond. Um, it's a very rigid, linear molecule um, and it's found in things like bran and nuts and peas and root vegetables. Now something you'll notice, like a lot of these things, like roots, cabbages, legumes, seeds and things, these are commonly like, major parts of diet of people in other parts of the world, right? Cellulose is really commonly consumed but you can't, you can't access that energy source Other benefits of cellulose, but in some of these parts of the world, you need energy, right? You want to consume more energy. Not our case in the United States, typically. But at any rate, there are people that have tried to do some like genius grants or study some exploratory things to try and find a way for us to be able to access this beta linkage. Like people have been trying to figure out: Is there, like, for example, a bug? Is there like a, a certain bacteria that maybe could Engineered to you know be able to break this linkage so that people consuming this could access more energy sources. Kind of interesting, maybe far fetched, but um, potentially really useful. But at this point, we cannot access the beta 4 link 1,4 linked um, polysaccharides. Okay, now then we have the hemicellulosis, and as you saw on the last slide, I didn't point out. Normally, but there's hemicelluloses fall on both sides of the spectrum. Some hemicelluloses are soluble and some are insoluble. So it depends on the um, makeup of the compound. Um, but any of these sugars as a backbone, basically there's a formula you can think about um, here on the top. Any of these can be a backbone to these hemicelluloses, and any of these can make a variety of side chains as you can imagine, depending on the backbone and the side chains, it would lead to a variability in solubility, okay? And you can think of all the different combinations to come up with for this. But they're typically very highly branched um, and also found a lot of the things we just mentioned in the celluloses, also in the brands and legumes and veggies and fruits, okay, so forth. Okay, then we have the pectins, okay? This is a soluble fiber. We think about contributing to the nice gel, right? I think if you make jam, don't let me fool you, I don't make jam, does anyone make jam in here? We think about pectins, right? Adding pectin, maybe. Um, That's how this works. Um, This is typically, you think about the pectins found more in the flesh of the fruit and vegetable versus the skin, okay? So I'd be curious if your apple supplement is probably a mixture. I bet you they took some from the skin and from the flesh, is what I'm guessing they did. I'm guessing.
1: I'm wondering, in the studies, what they actually looked at. What is a supplement to them? Did they just use, I don't know, some some of the fiber supplements are just one. I can't remember the name of it, but.
0: Metaducil, probably, Um, the big
1: one. That's a soluble. I was trying to get a blend supplements that are insoluble, unless you're looking at uh, psyllium and that whole area, um, there's, some, there's some cellulose that they'll sell. And so if the research is looking at just that, I'd say, okay, whatever.
0: Mm, interesting. All right. All right, then we have the lignans. They're basically composed of a bunch of phenol units. I've shown some examples at the bottom. Um, And these are, this is an insoluble fiber, and again, very highly branched. And typically, I always think about carrots. Have you ever had a carrot that's really hard that you can't bite into? That's probably a high lignin content. You have that problem? Um, But that's what I typically think about. Um, But they're found in other things like wheat. and some other fruits with seeds, so the lignans. Um, and then you have the gums. All right, gum arabic. I know you've seen that probably on a label. Um, and that's added to foods as a thickening agent. Um, ice cream contains gum okay, arabic. Often, gum arabic, arabic gives stability to things that are um. Well, ice cream is a colloid, right? Does anyone remember what a colloid is? Anybody from chemistry? Well, rate, anyway, if you're curious, um, look it up. But anyway, colloids are basically a physical, some, uh, something suspended within a solid, uh, within a liquid. Okay, it's like a, um, now, I'm, now I can't even define it after I ask you that. Um, but anyway, this allows stability to that colloid to stay within the mixture. Has a tendency to see us separate. So, ice cream is an example of that. So, they add the gum arabic to add stability to the colloid um, of the mass within the soluble mixture. Um, you can think about, I always think about um, barley too. If you add barley to a soup, right, it creates that, um, it goes from a broth to become more of a creamy base. That's exactly what's happening here. It's so the same thing. Alright, so this is from your book, and on the left you have dietary fibers, and these are things that are intrinsic to plants. Okay, we just looked at all of these, most of these, um, and these are found naturally in plants. Now on the other side, we have a list of what's called functional fibers. Um, and these have been isolated from foods and then added back to foods or in some cases sold as a supplement. So James bought a functional fiber as the apple supplement. Right? He's trying it out. Um, so yeah you can either buy it individually or you'll see it often dumped back into certain foods also. Um, this is a summary of all the different types of fiber and different foods again from your book. It's just a nice little summary um, slide. Just to reference, um, you can think about the types of fiber and then some foods. And while people that attend last year might be really familiar with a lot of these different foods, if you step outside of our bubble, right, a lot of people aren't as familiar or consuming these foods very regularly. And um, one of my favorite examples is when. Back in my grad work when I was down in Oregon State. Um, I was working, I, I will, I'll keep it anonymous, I was working in this lab um, of this a guy, a, a very well-known researcher. I mean, he, he was a fatty acid guy, and he, he did a lot of great stuff. He was very bright. He was in his 50s and 60s. And um, anyway, he came into the lab meeting one day, and he sits down, and he says, you guys, I tried this new food. It's called Quinoa, <laughs> And I said, I tried to give a straight face. And I said, Do you mean quinoa? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I tried quinoa. And I was like, sitting there, like, Oh my goodness. He was like, This new exciting thing to him, right? Um, he had never even heard of it. He was a Midwest guy. And he obviously wasn't so interested in expanding his, his different types of whole food intake. Um, but it was just so funny. Like, you, Even people in the field, you get outside of a certain type of person. A lot of people don't even think about this. So, um, Anyway, okay. So you can think about fiber being classified a few different ways. There's other ways of classifying it. We can think about viscosity. Sometimes you'll see, especially when you start to get into the food science world, people start thinking about food in these terms. Okay, Viscosity versus non-viscosity. Fermentable or not. Non-fermentable. And are they available to us, or are they resistant to digestion? Okay. Um, so can anyone define
1: viscosity? I was just going to say, like, maybe how heavy it is, or, like, when it's digested and it turns into that... Got the me. gel. Yeah, that gel. Yes, yeah, so that's
0: what we're thinking about, and just sit back from even from food, just like in a you're in a laboratory, like just being slow, like, like heavy, cloudy. slow pouring. I just remember it being like cloudy versus like more clear, oh,
1: Something like solid
0: maybe. Yeah, that might have been the substance you were using too, but you said more solid. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's heavier. It's it's resistance to flow, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about that, Metamucil we stirred up and put in the water, and it made that gel. You put that on a little ramp, and you pour it. It's going to move really slow, or at least relatively slow. If you dump the med- the cellulose in the bottom just drop to the bottom of the water, and you dump that water on the ramp, it's just going to run down, right? That's low viscosity. Something versus the gel is going to have a higher viscosity, right? Um. This matters in our gut, which we will discuss. Okay. If you think about um, the vast majority of the soluble fibers that we're going to talk about, you think of them as having this ability to be viscous. Okay, so you now you start thinking about soluble fiber being viscous. Okay. Um, again, fermentability, we're thinking about substrate for bugs. Can bugs use them? When I mean bugs, I mean bacteria in your gut, mostly your colon, but throughout your whole gut. gut. Can those bugs use these as substrates to ferment? Okay. Now, those substrates happen to be typically, again, soluble fiber, okay? So now we've expanded our definition, or our characteristics of soluble fiber to viscous, viscosity, and now fermentability, okay? Um, Insoluble fibers, just to be clear, insoluble fibers are typically not viscous, and insoluble fibers are typically not fermentable, okay? I say it all the right name. Some are, because we get into that little strange group of the hemicellulosis, right? Depending on how they're built, changes their availability of solubility and or fermentability. But um, in general, this rule will apply. It's a good basic rule. And then you have this classification of available versus resistant. Um, and again, available means we can access them to digest and use for energy and we utilize them and resistance means they are resistant to our digestive enzymes. Okay, and so that's the next place I want to head is I want to walk through each of these separately, okay? And we have, we're we gonna discuss some other things too. I want to run through this table and they point out how sometimes, um, this table points out sometimes there's some issues or some Challenges in our physiology um, that interfere with our ability to metabolize some of these. So you can see there's categories over here. Uh, we have available, carbohydrates, and resistant. okay. And within the, uh, you can separate them, think about sugars, right? So these would be more of the individual units, monomers. Um, and then you can think about starches, the larger, um, oligosaccharides, and so forth. So for example, how this table works is, for example, fructose is shown as, it's largely metabolized by the liver, okay? And hepatocytes take fructose out of the blood and convert them to glucose molecules, okay? This would be an example of them connecting what these sugars do. Now we have starches, again, they are available carbohydrates from that starch will ultimately be glucose when we metabolize that starch. Um, and you can think about them as measured um, as rapid. You can see down here is the um, the key. But the RAG, you can think about them as rapidly available or slowly available glucose. Okay. Um, we'll discuss how rapidly or slowly glucose is available from starch. We'll talk about that. And then you have the resistant carbohydrates. Okay. So resistant starches are naturally occurring or produced, and we'll talk about that. Non-digestible, but fermentable by, again, gut bacteria. Um, And so the NSPs here, these are dietary fiber molecules, the non-starch polysaccharides. This is where dietary fiber would fall under, non-starch polysaccharide. Um, Any um, non-starch polysaccharide added would be a functional fiber. So there's this term added NSP here. Um, and then you have the resistance short chain carbs. This would be things like the raffinoses and so forth. Those small um, NSPs here that are, um, or the no, the small um, soluble fibers that we talked about or they mentioned that could be fermented by bacteria. Um, this, Some of the smaller units would be considered these RS, these short chains, anything under nine or ten. Um, And then the sugar alcohols, also called the polyols, where we don't digest them, okay, to be fermented or anything like that. But if you've ever consumed a large amount of sugar alcohols in brief a period of time, has anyone probably no one wants to share this one? Um, but I'll so I'll use my sister, because she'll never meet you guys. Especially because the cafeteria is closed, so she's fine she'd even be here for lunch. Um, but I always think about my sister because The polyols my sister one time before this date she had a date this was a long time ago and she was really nervous about this date okay and so she had these little mints that she kept just nervously eating and they had a lot of sugar alcohols in them well before she even gets to this date she had had the whole container of these polyols okay long story short for my sister the date ended very shortly and she was in the bathroom Mm -hmm. with some very high gi distress okay now, why would someone, they consumed all these sugar alcohols, in a brief amount of time, why was my sister in the bathroom, okay? Does anyone have any idea? It's directly related to this high consumption of polyols.
1: Well, they're laxative, but I mean, why are they are laxative? I, I would guess gut bacteria is acting on them.
0: Okay, James thinks something to do with bacteria. Well, if you think about it, why this would result in something like diarrhea is because you have this massive—you're presenting this massive solute load to your gut, right? And so, what happens when you have this really high solute load? You have an infusion of water to dilute that solute load, and that is what the that's that's what promotes elimination. I'll put it that way. This applies to other supplements too and other micronutrients. You can think of any time you present a high celluloid to the gut, this is could be a response. Anyway, I always think of my sister when I think of the, the polyols. Um, but again, we don't digest um, typically. As you can see, there are some exceptions, but in general, I want us to think about them as non digestible Okay. So, then you can think about, um, Glycemic versus non-glycemic contributors to our diet. Glycemic things we consume and we assimilate. Um, not to say, per se, they are glycemic and raising our blood sugar. Okay, that's a different conversation. But they're converted to glucose-like molecules, um, glucose or glucose-related molecules in the liver. If they have that capability of becoming glucose or glucose-related molecule, they are considered glycemic. Okay. Um, non-glycemic is things we don't assimilate. So the polyols, Uh, which I like that name, because sugar alcohols are actually not alcohols, chemically speaking, so this is more like an appropriate name for a polyols. Resistant, modified starches, and then we see fiber here, listed here, the non-starch polysaccharides. These would fall under um, the non-glycemic classification. Okay, And then you can think about um, the Category thinking about increasing stool output or having no effect at all. Um, so here we have our resistant starches. Here, where do they fall under here? Um, you can again think about um, the idea. Well, I'll just leave it here. Um, we're going to walk through some of this in a minute. Yeah. Below you see, well, what I'll just say here is, um, you have this idea of, again, increased solute load. If you can't digest, for instance, lactose, right, if you're lactose intolerant, or you can't assimilate fructose, um, which actually is a large percentage of people who experience fructose malabsorption, mal- which is really interesting. Um, and then you have the non, again, the fiber here, the um, non-starch polysaccharides, um, and there are associated benefits with fecal bulk, so this would be, this is what we'll generally think about for insoluble fiber, is our ability to increase stool output, um, and we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, and then, and then there are no effect. There are a variety of mono or dye or legal um, saccharides that have no effect on our stool weight, and we'll see why in a little bit. Um, Okay, so I want to take a minute and talk about some of their molecules in this category here, um, in this functional category, so that you're just familiar with them because they are very commonly consumed and readily available. So I want to talk about some of these functional fibers um, and then we'll take a break. So we have inulin. you're probably familiar with, it's derived from chicory. So here up above you'll see When they want to add fiber, like on an ingredient list, a very common way, whether it's a bar, drink, you'll probably see inulin there. So up above, here's this picture, this is chicory root, okay? Um, Before it's been processed to extract the inulin. Um, Inulin is also very, very highly abundant in breast milk, which is kind of interesting. Um, And it is considered a prebiotic food, okay? It provides a really nice substrate for bacteria. And it's found in other things I listed here: asparagus, garlic, onions, so forth. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so in some cases, resistant starches can be naturally occurring. Okay, but typically you can think about um, four. There's four different classifications of resistant starches. Okay, and they're by a number system, RS1, 2, 3, and 4. Um, number one, RS1 are plant cell walls, so physically trapped in the cell matrix. Okay, if, if this, if, if it's literally inaccessible by this physical structure. Um, two is the undilatinate starch granules, so you can think about um, there's certain fibers within something like corn, or you can think about bananas. Um, Again, we're thinking this is very similar in the way that it's physical structure allows us no access with enzymes, our enzymes to get to certain parts of the fiber, okay? Um, Number three is molecules that retrograde starch from cooking and cooling. Okay, so interestingly enough, if you cook potatoes and then they get cold, something interesting happens. There's some cross-linking of these starch molecules that make it more resistant to digestion. Okay? Um, and yes, that continues on the more you cook and cool the potatoes. So every time you heat them up and cool them down, there's more and more cross-linking. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I have to look how many they they done, but I know some people suggest like doing that as a way to increase the resistant starch content of your, of something like a potato. Um, And then four, we have chemically modified starches. So the benefits here, um, you can think about weight management, potentially, digestive health, anything similar to fiber benefits, people usually assimilate to this. I think I posted a paper on this. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Um, But as you can see, some of the resistant starches can be thought about from coming from foods or functional fibers, both categories. Um, but they have tried to quantify people consuming as part of their diet every day. Um, their, the, the general suggestion is 20 grams a day for that benefit. Okay. But it's just kind of interesting to think about, and you will probably see some of this depending on what literature you're reading. All right, and then we have chitin and chitazan. Okay, it's interestingly, this is interesting because it's derived from insects or shellfish, okay? So basically people have processed and isolated these molecules, chitin and chitazan, okay? Um, And then you can modify them as shown here um, by basically a deacetylation process. And now you have, ultimately, a polysaccharide made of glucosamine and acetylglucosamine. Okay? Now, I'm just walking through this right now. You deacetylate it, once you've isolated chitin, and then you make this polysaccharide, and now you have this interesting molecule. And this has been shown to have um, cholesterol lowering effects. And it actually does so in ways that are not too dissimilar from how soluble fiber works. In terms of the mechanism of lowering cholesterol. Um, so it's just interesting to think about. On the right here, I've put together how you first get to chitin. Right. So you might this could be an insect or it could be a crab. Basically, maybe someone serves crab at a restaurant, and then the shells are recycled and given to someone. I don't know. I'm sure there's some connection to the supplement industry, but you get those shells, and then you decalcify those shells. You get rid of strip them and then you deprotonate them, okay? And then you remove the color, and then you isolate the chitin from them, okay? And that chitin is unavailable, okay? And then you take this chitin, and you deacetylate it, and now you have chitin. Okay, those are the two c- compounds you're thinking about. Yeah?
1: Um, next to the 1,4, is that a little bicycle?
0: It has a little bicycle next to the 1-4. So, <laughs> Is it supposed <laughs> to be an alpha? alpha? I was oh, like, oh. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, alpha. <laughs> you didn't learn that in chemistry? <laughs> bicycle 1-4. Let me make it mm-hmm. note to fix that. I, like, zoomed in, and I was like, that's not the sign. <laughs> that? I don't know how that happened. It's supposed
1: to be alpha, um, or?
0: Yeah, hold on a 2nd <laughs> Okay, I'll fix that. Later. And, and excuse me, no, that would be beta, because this is an insoluble. Oh, hybrid.
1: Beta. Bicycle for beta.
0: Bicycle, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and this would be the basis, too, of you guys. Probably There's a very common joint supplement. What is it called? Chizan gluten. Um, there's a fancy name for it. People take for um, joint pain Yeah it's chi- it's something I don't even know the name of it my neighbors even gave it to their dogs for their joint pain and to help them uh, but there's also I, I, um, my brain's escaping right now, but it's also um, the backbone of that supplement is also chondroitin. It's, it's like Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I don't know. Okay, then we have psyllium, this is Metamucil, this is what I was talking about earlier, Metamucil. And again, up here you have the psyllium, here, Um, and you can basically isolate from the husk, okay, of the psyllium seeds. You can see down here, there's this mucilage here. And this just happens to have, this mucilage from inside that husk, just happens to have a really high water-binding capacity. Okay, which provides that viscosity to form that gel. And this is commonly um, used as a laxative, again, with sufficient water allowing for that gel to form to move things through. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but this is a very common ingredient. All right, um, let's see here. We have about 10 more minutes. Do you guys want to keep going or do you want to take a break and finish up? Mm-hmm. We'll keep going. Do you have preference? Can we be done early? Okay, um, so why all, this emphasis, why all this emphasis on fiber, right? Well, first, just to review, kind of you can see these categories that we kind of referenced put together in the last few minutes is thinking about. Um, structural fibers, more of those insoluble fibers, well again, the, wa- the fiber that sinks to the bottom of the glass and settles, um, they're insoluble, they're typically not viscous, and they're not very fermentable. Okay, again, we're thinking about cellulose, some of the hemicellulosis, um, and lignin's is another great example. And then you can think about the gel forming fibers, um, and these would be our soluble fibers, which are typically um, able to produce vis- viscous mass, and they're fermentable. Okay, Things like the pectins, and the gums, and the mucilages, and again, some hemicellulosis. And I just put an exception here, because it's always nice to know, but gum Arabic is soluble, but it actually is not very viscous at all. Interesting. All right, so why all this talk about fiber? Why are we reviewing all this? Well, I just want to review some basic general data here. It's basically the results of these two major studies, okay? Now, again, I am a basic scientist, okay, so I'm a bit of a purist, and as I hope you all are too, and I'll start here, and we're all, I mean, maybe you're aware or not, but I feel like I have to probably announce this, there are very large limitations to large epidemiological studies. There always are, okay? Um, and the goal of them, in my mind, and hopefully lots of other people, is you start to see or collect certain patterns. And then from those patterns you further investigate down into more basic science and you unveil if there's any um, relevance to what was seen in that pattern right but until it's followed up with actual studies it's just kind of an interesting observation in my mind okay Um, but that being said um, i want to look at some very large studies some of them include almost a million people they compiled data with a very large data set which is interesting how many of you have covered relative risk yet in stats, biostats? Have you guys covered it yet? Really? I cool. mean, we've looked at this type of graph, and we know, like, the 95% CI thing, which is triggering me. Which has triggered you? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like you all to calculate something for me right now. Oh, I'm gosh. Um, no, I know. Stats is one of those things, man. You just got to just take it head on mm-hmm. until you get it. It'll be a while. Um, and you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone. Okay. Um, so well, let me step back. So there's, this is, I'm introducing this. This is a compilation data of almost a million people, so over 900,000 people, across six different prospective cohort studies. Okay? And they're interested in looking at relative risk in mortality. Okay? So that's a pretty easy endpoint, right? Death. And it's like comparing highest fiber intake and lowest. Okay, and then in some studies they separate into the different quartiles or, you know, quintiles and thinking about, you know, where you fall in your fiber intake. And in this case, the highest fiber consumption group was 30 grams, and the lowest was 15. Okay. This should be in our, it's probably in the next lecture, but the average intake in America is 15 to 18 grams per day. So that would be on the low end, right? All right. So it seems like a tight range. Um, but there actually seems to be a very large um, difference in mortality rate when you get anywhere, when you move from that 15 grams to 30 gram jump in fiber. Um, so, and again, I, I, will talk about this again in the next lecture, but the, the estimate for your, for for a person is 14 grams of fiber per thousand calories consumed. And that's how you get to the reference for men and women, generally 28 to 32 grams, averaging 30. But some people that need or consume more than you know, two or 3,000 calories, they're not even anywhere near their fiber needs, right? The average is around 15 grams in our country. Um, okay, with that in mind, consider this. So look at our relative risk here. You see this bar of 1, and relative risk of 1 means there's no difference in this study. There's no change in risk depending on how much fiber you ate. No change, no difference or no protection or harm, That's how you can think of it. If you go above one, if you cross one, you have increased risk of your outcome. In this case, we're calculating mortality. But if you go below one, you have a reduced risk of dying because of your fiber consumption. It's associated, right? We're not saying this causes this, just an association outcome. Um, and then this shows, because you have these really nice tight confidence intervals, Anytime a confidence interval doesn't cross over one, you have um, a significant relationship, and you can see none of these confidence intervals. Well, one of them, five of the six studies, showed significant effects of protective effects of fiber. Right, this one study here, the confidence interval crosses one, so that is not significant for our conversation. But the other five studies show um, a very tight confidence interval, tighter you could say. So basically what this says is if you ate more fiber, you lived longer. Um, relative risk, looks us look at some numbers of 0.77, down here the overall, so you can, now, you can compile data and come up with an average of all of this data, and overall of you took, put together all these prospective studies, and the overall relative risk here was 0.77. So what does that mean? It's a protective effect, it's under one, but it, what does it mean? It says you have a 23% less chance of dying compared to the group that ate the lowest amount of fiber. Okay? Now, yeah, you might think, okay, eat fiber, stay alive, right? And I literally do. Like, sometimes when we're eating, like, my husband eats some varied foods, but sometimes I don't even ask him, and I'll, like, add certain fiber to his food, and I'm just, like, like spinach or whatever. I'm like, I'm helping you live longer. Um, and I say that because... This is, and here, what I really should be saying and for the next study is high fiber foods, right? This data is based off of high fiber foods. And that becomes important because you can't say fiber is gonna save your life, but people who eat high fiber foods that happen to contain a lot of other nutrients, they're very nutrient dense foods in general, right? And you could also say people that eat high fiber foods tend to do a lot of other things that promote their health, right, so yeah, as you can see, there's limitations to these big studies but this, these relationships I'm describing are associated with eating foods that are high in fiber. So I should be more specific. If you eat foods that are high in fiber, you are more likely to stay alive longer. Okay? Now, let's look at another one. Another study showing similar things. And I know this is a terrible table to look at. And um, It's tiny, and I try not to do this. Okay, so I apologize. But this is from the Dietary Fiber Intake and Mortality in the NIH-AARP diet and health study and they separated fiber intake into quintiles okay again this is a compilation data of 500,000 people okay Um, and so you can see um, there's two there's a lot of stratifications here but you can see men and then women and then within men and women it's separated by things like um, they're adjusting for smoking BMI um, and so forth okay and age. So you can adjust for all these sorts of things. So, you can see listed here for the men, um, is slightly different for the um, quintiles for women. Again, they generally consume different amounts because of generally differences in size. But you can see for men, the quintiles range from 12 grams of fiber to 16.4, and then 19, and then 22, and then almost 30 grams. With women, you're seeing around 11, 14 grams, 17, 20, 26 grams. Okay, so again, now they're trying to separate. What's the difference here in mortality, a very hard outcome, when people consume high fiber foods in these different amounts, okay? One thing to note, if you really happen to look into these sorts of things, you start looking at these numbers, if you look at the mortality rates in men and women, starting at the lowest quintile and move down, You'll notice they drop off as you go through the category, right? Granted, there are less people in each of those categories. As you move up in consuming higher fiber, you're going to have less people that are consuming high fiber. So it's natural you would have less people in those categories. So that's where relative risk will become important, right? Um, and then they've done some age-adjusted variants here. Um, and when you look at the age-adjusted, Um, relative risk here you can see a nice interesting pattern um, is that you intake more and more fiber your relative risk of mortality drops okay and it's the same thing in women Um, if you look at age-adjusted here um, where's relative risk in women here if you look at age uh, and women here the age-adjusted Um, Relative risk you see going, again, from 70 to 60 to 50 to 52. That's a really low relative risk. You can see this nice progression. The more fiber you're consuming, the higher up in those quintiles you move, your mortality rate is lower. Um, So again, mortality is a nice hard measure. Okay, but why is it protective? Okay, again, as I alluded to, there are a host of reasons. A host of reasons, but these studies are so massive um, and what they do is, again, how, so how are these studies compiling this data? Well, it's food intake data, right? They ask you to give a sample of what you're eating, and then there's a number of months or years, and then they do a follow-up intake, nine-year follow-up, five-year follow-up, right? Starting at, I don't know, this study was starting age 50 to 71, so those people start getting older. Um, so then, anyway, there's all sorts of adjustments they're trying to account for when they do these different stratifications and there's other um, lifestyle adjustments you can try to adjust for, or control for physical activity or BMI and so forth. And you do all these different adjustments and that pattern still remains, okay? So again, eat high fiber foods, you will likely have a lower mortality rate, okay? Can you eat too much fiber? <sighs> yes, you can, and the be- but I mean, typically it's gonna be an acute, you mean like what will be the negative outcome? Typically, right. it's if you eat consume a large large amount of fiber. I mean, it's a very acute outcome, um, just pain, a lot of pain, mm. um, or depending, or it could be GI distress depending on the type of fiber you consume. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, did they differentiate between soluble and insoluble in this study? Or mm-hmm. okay. Something yeah, that's on. the kind of things that we would be interested in, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's really important, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and this is a big study. I mean, that would be something interesting you could do with the data. The data is publicly available, you know, and I don't know if the food records are available if someone has sorted through that data to, you know, if they've quantified the amount of grams of fiber, then they should know specifically enough to be able to separate insoluble and soluble. Maybe someone has done that. I don't know. I haven't seen that. Okay. So, this is where I want to leave you off with today. Um, how are these benefits achieved? Okay. Well, we can think about them in a couple ways, okay, but both from the small intestines and the large intestines. You can think about it. Um, Anatomically, two different locations, we're going to think about potential benefits okay, that we can talk about. Um, so, and what do I mean by benefits? So I mentioned, I just showed you quick data. because I was making it a quick summary of mortality risk because it's a little bit more cut and dry. But there's also data associated with increased, like I just showed you, with increased high fiber foods related to lower risk of heart diseases and diabetes, and certain cancers, obesity, and so forth. Okay, so you'll see general patterns tends to be a really just good thing to include in your diet, okay? And so what I want to think about next is, I was saying, anatomically thinking about what's happening in the small intestines and large intestines, and how that might physiologically contribute to lower risk of some of these things, okay? In the small intestines, we're gonna start thinking about what's very important is viscosity, or solubility, and that ability to create that gel-like mass, okay? Um, And in the large intestines, we're gonna think about fermentability, which becomes a characteristic of fiber. Um, And so, insoluble may play a role, okay? Um, But soluble fiber tends to play, in my opinion, a larger role in these outcomes. Um, just from what's the available evidence. So it would be really interesting to confirm that and see if these people are consuming, my suspicion would be higher solubility. Okay. So, if we think about, if you walk through the GI, um, we'll start in the stomach. Um, So solubility, again, will determine the amount of viscosity and mixing, okay? So when food is swallowed and it enters your stomach, it's in an aqueous environment, right? And so you have soluble fiber molecules that are in the stomach and they become part of the stomach contents, whatever's going on, right? And it's churning, right? I think of the stomach as a washer spinning things, right? That's what the stomach's doing. It's contracting and it's churning whatever's in your stomach. And in our scenario, we're thinking about an aqueous environment with hopefully some soluble fiber, okay? Um, and now because of this cross-linking of these muscles um, how your stomach's designed right you have this tumbling washer dryer moving and you have soluble fiber and aqueous solution you created a gel okay again soluble slow so you have this viscous gel like mass in the stomach at this point okay now what will that do in terms of rate of emptying of those stomach contents into the next compartment, what do you guys think? It slows it, down. it slows it down, and that's the fancy way of saying delayed gastric emptying. Okay, there's a gel in your gut in your stomach. Um, liquid will empty very quickly. The gel-like substance will not move as quickly. Think about just like the ramp. Okay, but now we're in a different area. Okay. Um, You can think about another just very general extrapolation from this, thinking about drinking apple juice versus eating an apple. Um, Juice will not get you as full or as filling, but you read your blood glucose and it will spike very quickly, right? Liquid moves through the tube very quickly, it's absorbed very quickly. Um, You can eat an apple and you actually chew it, so you actually disrupt the cell wall and expose that soluble fiber create that viscous mass you're gonna have delayed gastric emptying and you'll have a much more gradual increase in blood glucose levels okay Um, so it's much slower it's it's basically a time release blood glucose um, or it's basically a time release of glucose and that results in the lower and slower pace of the blood glucose levels rising okay okay Non-viscous fibers have little effect, but they're usually consumed together, right? So like the fiber, the skin of the apple will be something you consume unless you skin your apple. So they're usually consumed together, but they're not going to have typically this effect. Um, But they will become part of the viscous mass. So whatever you've consumed, so that's why you think about is all the food that you're consuming becomes part of the gel. It's not like this soluble fiber makes a gel and all the other food. Everything that you consume will be part of this big gel, okay? So now you have a viscous mass, okay? All the food you ate moving into the small intestines. And what does that do for us? Well, interestingly enough, it can entrap or sequester nutrients within this gel-like structure. If you think about it, it's a gel and it's pulling together everything. Is that good or bad? Well, it depends on what the nutrients are, right? Um, but if you think of it as a sponge, right? Or yeah, if you think of this, just bear with me, this viscous gel as a sponge, right? And it's pulling things in and entrapping it. The farther in those nutrients are in within this sponge, the harder access it is gonna, in the small intestines is gonna have to have access to those nutrients. The transporters um, and so forth to get in to the enterocytes would be much more difficult without, um, if it's contained within that sponge. Enzymes that might be necessary in the lumen of the gut to digest things, right? Um, or even just to get them up to the brush border to be absorbed. If it's within this gel, it makes it much harder to be absorbed, right? Um, interfere with my cell formation, how would that happen? Well, fat absorption is critical. Um, and if you interfere with that, um, particularly we're thinking about interfering with lipid um, absorption, um, and we'll walk through that. Um, decreased enzyme access, we just talked and mentioned that. Um, reduced nutrient movement. Okay, so this is interesting. Um, so and this is where we'll leave off here in a second. So, you have, let's say, you guys are going to learn about my really secret level of artist right here. Okay, so lumen, it'll be the basal lateral side. I know it's implied, but okay, so here's our food, right? Here's our gel, our viscous mass coming through, okay, with all this slow moving through, okay? And then here's where things are absorbed, okay? So you're going to have a variety of transporters. Right? That are all responsible for bringing in different things. Your favorite macro, micronutrient, you name it. Um, so, this is really interesting because what well, you don't really hear, and then you have this food being brought in. But right here, right at the, the brush border here, is what's called the unstirred water layer. Has so anyone heard of this before? Very interesting. There's a small path, like a river of water, that's constantly moving right here. The unstirred water layer. Who would have thought? Okay? Now, think about this. It's a watery layer that you have to pass to get to your transporters, whatever, and the enzymes, you can even draw enzymes on this border. What do you think happens when you have this viscous gel-like thing rolling through and hitting this watery layer? It becomes gel-like too, right? So what that does is it could have an inhibitory effect on absorption, allowing things to get through to these transporters to be absorbed, right? And then what is gonna be absorbed or moved in will happen very slowly, right? Because then you have to think about not only inhibiting access, but whatever does get access from this mass will take more time to even get through, right? Because you're moving through a gel now and not water. The fact is, we might eventually still absorb it, okay, as it moves on through the tube. Maybe this is the GI, maybe we absorb it down here, but again, there's less transporters, right? A lot of what's happening is up in the proximal small intestines, and it might not matter for some nutrients, but some it could become very important. Things like iron, right? It's only absorbed in the duodenum. You have 12 inches, that's all, that's your shot. And if you miss that, and it keeps moving on down the tube, you've missed your chance to absorb iron, okay? Um, so, I mean, that's an example of a really high fiber diet could lead to decreased absorption of minerals. So like Vanessa's asking, can you eat too much fiber? So yeah, you can think about if you're consistently eating too much fiber and you're not um, consuming enough certain minerals, it could be detrimental for sure. Hmm. Um, and again, it's just think about the apple versus apple juice example. If you're eating apple juice, it's just shooting through, being absorbed you're eating the whole apple, you're creating this gel, which is gonna slow everything down, not only the timing of up here where it's entering this little sphincter, it's just, so it's gonna take time to even move to the small intestine. So you think about it, there's like a drip, It's like a, like a sand timer, it's like dripping these little blobs of viscous mass slowly. So you have a more of a timed release into the small intestine, so a little bit at a time being released in, so it's slower. Not only that, but once those slow drops actually make it here, It's going to be slower movement, hitting that uncertain layer, it's even slower to even get to the transporter, and then there's less of it available to the transporter to be brought in. And that explains the apple example. This is is applied to glucose. Glucose is trapped in here. It's more slowly presented, and what's even available here, and that's why you have that slower rise, um, slower and less rise in blood glucose levels. Okay? Okay. Um... So we're gonna, and this is what I talked about here, um, and we'll start off with this for the next lecture. We'll be thinking about this. Um, So I I basically just said this, so I won't repeat myself, but because of this whole process, basically we're thinking about the apple, and our term soluble fiber, um, and lowering our blood glucose um, release, because you have that lower postprandial glucose level, you're also going to have a lower insulin response. And we're going to revisit this example of proportionally releasing insulin to glucose formally coming up. But as we know, as we looked at from the beginning of the course, that you have glucose levels, you have insulin is proportionally released to match those, right? So when you have lower blood glucose, you're going to have a lower insulin response to match that, which is also nice, right? Okay, does anyone have any questions about this right now? So we're gonna revisit this, what I just ended on. We're gonna start here in the next lecture, um, and then we'll um, move on to thinking about, normally, how soluble fiber lowers cholesterol. Okay, I like faster levels. Okay, the so, only you know, impression that's all I had for you today.